good morning, everyone. It's good to uh, see the portions of you that I can see. Um, uh, open your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. And we will continue on with Romans chapter 9 in a few moments. However, before we get there, I just have a, a few words, a couple things I wanted to address regarding uh, our mask policy, enforcement thereof, and reasoning behind, etc. A uh, couple of weeks ago, actually it was on July 5th, we did a message on this topic. And um, we spoke from Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 3 and Colossians uh, 3, I think, and Ephesians uh, 5. And we spent quite a bit on this time talking about our reasoning behind what our response was going to be regarding the uh, mask mandate, etc. And in that message, um, I encourage you, if you didn't get to hear it or, uh, or want to, it's, uh, it's on the website. You can find it that way. You can also find it on the uh, church app. Um, during that message, we uh, made the statement that we are submitting to our earthly authorities in an area that we believe doesn't require us to disobey something God has required us to do, nor does it require us to do something that God has forbidden us to do. And so this is the position that, that Parkside as an organization has taken. And uh, we've taken that position because we think it's biblical. And um, different people may come to different conclusions. And so the question then that I want to address in our time right now is what about those people? What about people who have uh, come to a different conclusion? Well, you can see that we don't have any bouncers uh, in the back of the church. We don't have any enforcers with cudgels or, um, you know, jackboots or anything like that. Uh, we don't have any of that going on. Um, to enforce uh, the mask wearing, etc. Uh, you look around and you see that some people wear a mask. Some people are not wearing a mask. And um, you can see that during singing, that, that percentage might change. I tried to sing in a mask a couple of weeks ago, and it almost choked me out. It didn't work. I was singing about every, you know, two out of every three lines, and the other one I was trying to catch my breath, etc. So that morning I didn't do a whole lot of worship and song because I was busy thinking about how to sing with this thing on. So the next week, I didn't wear the thing. And, uh, and I sang that way. I wore it otherwise, but not then. And then uh, this week, and I think last week, I found, it, that I, I found a mask that I could breathe easily enough and I could sing with, etc. My point is, I'm just doing my best trying to figure out how to obey this, right? And we're all doing our best trying to figure out how to obey uh, this mandate. And so... In light of that, let's treat one another with Christian charity, right? We, uh, you who wear a mask should not look at a person who is not wearing a mask and, and assume, think in your mind, that he's just reckless and doesn't really care about the health of another person. Likewise, uh, the person uh, not wearing a mask uh, shouldn't look at a person who is wearing a mask and just think that that person is fearful, that, uh, that they don't really trust God. They're instead relying on some, something to uh, keep them safe. They're afraid of a virus. They don't really have uh, great faith or whatever. Uh, Paul will say in Romans 14, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Right? I can't see your heart. I, I can barely understand my own mind half the time. I'm certainly not going to be able to understand yours. So when we see one another responding differently to this, let's give some Christian charity. Okay? And I, I haven't, you know, there haven't been any fistfights in the, in the hallway or anything like that. I'm, but I'm saying that in our minds, we can look at another person and say, oh, they're not wearing a mask. Or they're wearing a mask. And, then, and we've made certain deductions, we think, from... And, and they're all in our brain. They're all in our brain. Okay? So let's treat one another with, with charity. Um, and I know this, this comes up not just because... Uh, we need to learn how to get along. <laughs> but because there, there are even some people who have decided temporarily to stop coming to church because of the, the church's position on the mask. And either they don't, uh, they don't want to be included in that or they're afraid people look at them uh, weird or whatever if they don't wear a mask or something, right? Um, they, uh, I've heard statements from people that it, when you boil it down, what they're saying is that they are fearful of looking like they're fearful, Okay. 
that, that they think by wearing a mask, they will portray, I'm afraid of this thing. And I, and I go through life in fear of every little thing that could hurt me. And so wearing a mask gives off that vibe. Well, it doesn't have to give off that vibe. And uh, we, that's not the conclusion we have to draw from it, particularly in our context, because we all know that uh, we, we're here because we fear God. And there are many, many who are wearing a mask, not out of fear of a disease, but because they fear God. And in submission to our authorities, they're wearing a mask. So let's, uh, let's think in those terms. Several weeks ago, the, uh, we, held, we laid out our biblical foundation um, for our mask policy, and it wasn't all that popular. It wasn't universally popular, I should say. A lot of people were grateful for, for some directions because it's not a big deal to wear a mask. Okay, it was just nice. For a lot of people, it was nice to hear um, what we were going to do and how we should uh, proceed. Uh, but regardless of how it was received or what you personally feel about it or what I personally feel about it, the elders arrived at that position not because of how we felt about it, but because we thought it was biblical. We thought it was biblical. And so we took the stance on that that we took because we seek to understand this issue biblically. Okay? I have opinions on this topic. I have feelings about this topic. And I'm not the only one in the room uh, who has feelings on this. But let, let me encourage uh, each of you to do just as the elders have done. We've been praying and agonizing over this for weeks. We've been pouring over our Bibles trying to understand the issues. And so let me encourage you to do just the same. First of all, pray about the mask mandate and any other government edicts. Pray about them. You can pray that they would change. That's, that's allowed. You, you can pray that a massive change can happen. We read imprecatory psalms in the Bible where, where the psalmist will actually pray for the destruction of another person. That doesn't mean he went out to accomplish it himself. He's praying that God would do that. And God can say, no, you're crazy. But we can pray that. And we can pray that these things will be changed. You can pray about any future government edicts, etc. Secondly, pray about your own heart in the situation. I have confessed before you that I'm a rebel at heart. That I, I will rebel. I will wiggle out, given the opportunity. That I, That's because of my flesh. And you and I have the same flesh. So I'm not the only rebel in this room. Thirdly, pour over your Bible to try and understand the issue. Have your Bible open. Go back and listen to that sermon from July 5th. Read through those passages. Study through those passages. Use your concordance. Find other passages. Study your Bible. If, if the only result for the Christian that comes out of this whole COVID situation is that you know your Bible better, fabulous. Fabulous. That's a win. Study your Bible. Pour through it and try to understand the situation. And in light of that, let me encourage you to spend more time in the Bible trying to understand what the Lord would have you do than you do listening to podcasts about the situation or than you do reading blog posts about the situation or than you do even reading the U.S. Constitution. I've done all of those things in the past few weeks on this topic. But let me encourage you that we need to have our nose in the book more than those other places. It's good to hear what other people think. It's good to hear their thoughts and all that stuff. But in the end, it comes down to what we're going to do in light of what we understand in God's Word. Regardless of what other people might say or what other arguments they might make on that topic. So, not everyone is very excited to wear a mask on a Sunday morning or wherever else you go. I'm one of those people, not very excited to wear one. But let me encourage you to think biblically on the topic and not just go with what you feel, with your opinion. Because our opinions can be wrong. And our, our feelings often need to be informed by what is true. Okay? And so, um, your, your own personal conclusion on this mask mandate uh, may be different from the church's position. The church had to take a position, and, and we as elders thought that for the organization, this is the best. This is the way to go. This is the way to proceed. Yours may be different. I understand the problem is not simple. 
we argue in circles and circles in our own brains trying to think about this situation. I get that. That's difficult. And so, for those who personally have made a different, come to a different conclusion, we ask that you would uh, be, be generous with one another. We ask that everyone pray, seek a biblical answer, and fear God, and treat one another with charity and not pass judgment on another person, in, even just in your own brain. And likewise, by the way, if you're sitting there wearing a mask and you're thinking, what are they thinking of me because I'm wearing a mask? Or you're sitting there not wearing a mask and you're thinking, what are they thinking of me because I'm not wearing a mask? They're probably not thinking about you, first of all. But second of all, let's, let's just give one another charity. They don't know what's in your brain and vice versa. Okay, And so we're, we're just trying to do the best we can. We're, uh, we're, we're trying to get along and obey this. We're trying to obey the Lord in the midst of this situation, and it's not cut and dried. Okay, And no one should be neglecting meeting together with the body because of this issue. There should not be disunity in the body because of a fear of any of these kind of things. Now, I know that uh, there are people who rightly so, are doing exactly the right thing because of health concerns. They are staying home and, and, and avoiding this context. Great. Praise the Lord for the Internet. Right? They can go and watch this now. They can watch it later or another time. But uh, we can't let us, who can be here, uh, we, we, we can't let this thing keep us from being here to, to worship together, to be together, to encourage each other in the Lord. Okay? And so that's... That's just uh, something that I wanted to um, kind of encourage, encourage us in regard to and, and kind of bring to our attention as we think about this whole thing, okay? That, that we need to reserve judgment for the, for the guy who doesn't have a mask on or the, or the guy who has a mask on, okay? Let's just, we're, we're trying to obey. We're doing the best we can. And the organization Parkside has come to this conclusion, and, uh, and we're, we're trying to obey it as best we can, okay? And so let's um, not let this divide. Let's not let this cause a disunity or argument between you and me because we disagree or whatever on the particular application of this. We want to be here to worship the Lord. We want to encourage one another. We want to uh, preach and listen to the Bible be preached this morning. Okay? So, all of that being said, our sermon is going to be on a completely different topic. (laughs) So, switch gears. We're going back to Romans chapter 9. And uh, it's not going to be on that particular subject. Um, we are going to read, uh, last week I, I gave you a, a taste of what it would be if someone made a lot of really fast progress going through the Bible, and then I'm going to pull that all away, snatch it right out from under you, and we're going to go back to verses 1 through 5 and go through them with a fine-tooth comb uh, pretty much. All right, so Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, even just in the opening words of our time together this morning, and even in these opening words of Romans chapter 9, we are made aware that there are grave circumstances of our life, and there are passing circumstances in our life. And Father, we... Uh, really have been agonizing, uh, maybe worrying, studying, praying, arguing maybe over what to do regarding uh, this mask mandate and how it affects the church and and other uh, limitations on size and how they affect the church and and those sorts of things and they have they have deep consequences and they uh, it's it 's an important topic but It's not on the same level as what Paul is agonizing over. As he thinks about his fellow Israelites separated from God 
because of their rejection of Christ. As he thinks about their eternity, as he thinks about their rejection, as he thinks about what what God's plan is in this whole thing, that is weighty. And so, Father, I pray for the next few minutes as we are together to discuss these verses, I pray that you would impress upon our minds and on our hearts what really, finally, ultimately matters. That we would pick up on Paul's heart in this situation. His love for the lost, particularly his lost kinsmen. Father, we do pray for our nation and our state. We pray for our world, and we do ask that you would give wisdom to our leaders, that they would make choices that would be honoring to you, that would be good for the people that they are given charge of, the people they represent, the people they are to care for. Give them wisdom. I pray that you would convict them to make uh, choices, decisions, rulings, etc. that would be honoring to you, that would be good for your people. I pray that you'd bring change in our nation. I pray that you would work in churches in the United States that maybe have uh, begun to preach something um, not so specifically the gospel. Maybe they've gotten off into other realms and things that they're pushing and promoting and I pray that you would convict them to come back to your word and preach Christ and him crucified, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that, that it would be explained, made clear, that people would be called to believe it, to repent and turn their life to you, and that churches would begin more and more to live this gospel, to live out what it means to be a child of God, that you would change our nation by those means from uh, bringing judgment first to your church, the household of God. So, Father, we do ask that you would do that. We don't, it's not that we don't care about uh, our nation or the direction it's going or uh, any of these things that we uh, see happening. We do care. We do care. But we entrust them to you. And we will not resolve them together in the next 40 minutes. But help us work in our hearts by your spirit, I pray, to focus on what you have for us in Romans chapter 9. I pray that you would work in our hearts. Be honored now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we covered the whole overview of chapter 9 and gave a uh, kind of a broad map uh, a lay of the land for you to be able to see kind of where things are going. And, uh, and then today we're going to focus in on these verses here at the beginning. And you can see in, uh, in the first couple of verses here, Paul's sincere compassion, his sincere compassion. He says in verses one and two, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He has a heavy heart. He has a heavy heart that he, he has great sorrow and anguish that won't quit in his heart. Something he lives with. It's there with him all the time. His heart is heavy. He's, I said last week that he's, he's writing this with tears on the page. And, and we need to keep that in mind as we think about Romans chapter 9 and as we think about the direction it's heading. Because often when we read Romans 9 or when we think about Romans 9 or when people talk about Romans 9, they talk about the very deep theology. They talk about the things that are, that are hard to understand and that, that really only professors in a university somewhere probably are haggling these things over. But for you and me, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's kind of removed from us. It, it's, uh, it's a heady thing. It's a... It's an ivory tower kind of thing. It's hard. It's harsh, maybe. We might have the opinion that Romans 9 is harsh. 
And we have to underscore before we go into those deep theological topics, what is happening here in these first few verses. Paul is weeping. He's not gearing up to have a really good theological debate. He's weeping. He's engaged. He's emotionally involved. His heart is heavy. He's, he enters into this conversation. What's, what's going to turn into the next several paragraphs to things that are very hard to say. And he does so with tears in his eyes. He has a heavy heart. And secondly, he has an honest heart. You see how, how, how uh, much he makes his argument that he's really telling the truth? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Could he have gone farther to say, I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. Right? He wants them to believe him. He wants them to, to see his heart. Here's my heart before you. God himself will testify. It is broken in this matter. This is my heart. A couple reasons why Paul might have to do this. First of all, he's, he's entering into, like I said, theology that can, can come off harsh. He's going to talk about some very deep things about the sovereignty of God and salvation of man. He's going to talk about things that are offensive to people. People can get emotionally turned off by this real easily. So he's starting that conversation, and the way he does it is by being as careful as he can, by being as gentle as he can. He's, he, he's, he's trying to lay out his heart that the things I'm about to say, I'm not saying because I have a Ph.D. in this subject. Not saying because I really like to talk about this stuff. My heart is broken, and thus I have to talk about this stuff. He's being as delicate as he can. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because Paul himself had kind of a bad reputation amongst the Jews. We, uh, we covered the book of Acts not long ago, and if you'll go back to Acts chapter 21, you'll remember what happens here in Acts chapter 21 where Paul had been on his missionary journeys. He had seen many things be done. He would, uh, everywhere he traveled, the first thing he would do when he showed up in a new town was go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. And sometimes they would receive him for a while, and sometimes it wouldn't take long before they run him out. He would minister there as long as he could. The gospel is for the Jew first, and that's what he did. And then they'd kick him out, and then he'd go to the Gentiles. And the Jews who believed would come with him, and he would... He would start a church preaching to the Gentiles and, and, and inevitably, inevitably those churches would end up being majority Gentile and partially Jewish. And everywhere he went, that's kind of what happened. And so by the time Paul's been traveling like this for a long time and comes back to uh, Jerusalem, he meets up with the brothers there at the church in chapter, chapter uh, 21 of Acts. And we read this in verses 19 through 21 after greeting them. He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. You see, the ministry that Paul had been doing, which was in a Gentile world, had given him a reputation for being somehow anti-Jewish or anti-Israel, as if, as if Paul was saying that he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't want that Judaism anymore, nothing to do with Judaism, as if he were, he were just saying it's all about Gentiles and, and a new faith for Gentiles. He had that reputation. And of course, that was unwarranted, but nevertheless, that was his reputation. And so he's got to say when he's writing this letter to to the church in Rome, he has to say to them, what's my heart towards the Jews? What's my heart towards my fellow countrymen, my kinsmen? Well, very, hard, very far from being hard-hearted and me not liking them, here it is. It's broken for them. I carry this heavy anguish, this 
unceasing brokenness in my heart for them. So he has a heavy heart. And he shows his honest heart. And then thirdly, that's a Christian heart. That's a Christian heart. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now he says this in Christ. And he's not just swearing as if he's swearing by Christ that this is true. It's not just that. It's not just an invocation. Another way of saying, no, no, really, really, no, really, I am telling the truth. No lie. (laughs) He's not. What he's revealing here, I think, is something deeper. And what is that? Well, he's, he's talking about the anguish, the sorrow, the pain, the heaviness that he feels. But where was Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8? Where was he emotionally? Where was he? He was rejoicing on the top of the Mount Everest of rejoicing. That he was talking about what we have in Christ, this security that we have in Christ, what has been accomplished for us by Christ. And so in him, what can separate us from that love? Nothing. No, nothing. No, nothing. He's rejoicing. He's praising God. He's at the top. He's at the highest point rejoicing in this salvation that he has in Christ. Well, what happened? That was the end of chapter 8. What happened? Did he, you know, go to bed on that high note and then sleep on the wrong side of the bed and wake up angry? Wake up sad and now he's writing chapter 9. What changed? What's different? Well, I want to say there's nothing different. There's nothing different. And here's, here's what I mean. The Christian heart rejoices in this peace that we have in Christ finds comfort unimaginable in Christ, rejoices in Him, praises God because of Him. We, we find ourselves with a, a joy that we can't express. But does that mean we go through life with a smile on our face every second? Everything is great. Everything's always great. It doesn't matter what happens. Everything's always great, right? With a great smile and we're happy and we rejoice all the time. Well, no, there are times in life when, 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 we, when we think about things that really matter and that are really bad, like a loved one being separated from Christ. And so we, we feel sorrow, a deep sorrow. We, we, we don't despair, but, but we feel it deeply and deep down. And so what is it? Do we go from joy to sorrow, joy to sorrow? No. The Christian bears them both simultaneously. This is part of the Christian life, that we can, we can find joy in the worst possible circumstances, not because we're schizophrenic or something, but because we have peace in Christ and nothing, even this impossible, terrible, horrific situation, can separate me from the love of Christ. So I have joy. I have peace. While simultaneously I think, this person's separated from God. This person is separated from God. And we feel a sorrow. A sorrow that is deeper because of how high our joy was. We know what we experience. We know what we had to expect. We know what we have in Christ. And so then we turn in sorrow to the lost person. And our sorrow is deeper. And likewise, the deeper our sorrow goes, the greater our joy is. Because we've been saved from that. We are those who have been redeemed. We are redeemed in Christ inseparably bound to Him. And so the Christian heart is simultaneously sorrowful and joyful. You won't always see a big smile on our face. And you won't always see tears in our eyes. But we operate simultaneously in both of those areas. And that's what Paul has going on here. That's what he's, I think, demonstrating for us. There's not, it's not that he switched gears from eight to nine. He's just talking about the other active part of his heart. It's the other thing going on. This great inexpressible joy at the end of Romans 8 and this agony of the beginning of Romans 9 are simultaneous. That's a Christian heart. That's a Christian heart. An objection has been raised at this point. 
that if, if God is really sovereign over the salvation of sinners, if it's his electing grace that's at work, if he, if he calls people to himself, if God is the one ultimately sovereign over salvation, is, is Paul here more compassionate than God? Because Paul says he'd be willing to give himself. Paul, Paul has this deep, deep anguish. Is, is God hard-hearted in this? Is, is Paul more compassionate than God is? Well, of course, we know the answer because we have basic theology that no, no one is more compassionate than God. And that's, that's the reason the objection is raised to say, well, the conclusion that God must be sovereign over salvation seems to belie this fact and seems to say that, no, that would make God less compassionate than Paul is. And we know that's not true. Therefore, your conclusion of God's sovereignty over salvation has to be wrong. And I I disagree with that. First of all, I I think uh, at the end of 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is working through these agonizing principles, these, these ideas that Remember, with tears on the page, he's talking about the salvation, God's, God's selection to save some and not others. Goes to the level of individuals and goes to the level of nations. When he's talking in, in chapter 11 and talking about the, the people of Israel and the Gentiles and how that all works together, Paul, after reasoning his way through all of that, here's what he concludes with. 11.33 and following. This is how he concludes that whole section. Remember, he started with tears. He started with an incredibly heavy heart, and he concludes 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul does have a very great degree of compassion. But that's not the whole picture. That's not the whole picture. As he argues on through 9, 10, and 11, Paul brings in these other aspects of God. The holiness of God. The wisdom of God. The insight of God the plan of God, what God is accomplishing, that that God has been at work to show the greatest degree and the greatest glory of mercy. That's his plan. That's what he's accomplishing. And Paul says, that's beyond my comprehension. This is what God is doing. I would not have come up with a plan like God's plan to accomplish that. But, But then he lays it out for us and he says, do you see? Do you see that at the end of all of this, God is glorified even more. His mercy is on display even more. The riches of his wisdom and what he's been working through all the course of history is brought together to the greater glory of God. So he rejoices in that. So his finite wisdom and understanding, even though he's an apostle, is so much below God's that at the end of 11 he would say, That's God's territory, and this is what he's doing. And it is glorious, and it is wonderful. But that's just the first reason. There's a second reason. You see, Paul is a sinful, finite man himself. And, you know, you and I have sinned against one another, or you've been sinned against... Uh, by another person, and, and we feel a certain degree of wrath, and we and and usually it's sinful, and but but we, you see the the offense when another sinful person offends me as a sinful person can be big. Usually it's about you know like well, you know I probably sinned against you that big last week. Sometimes it's enormous. Sometimes it's enormous the way we've been sinned against. However. I'm still fallen. I'm still a sinner. And so I may not have sinned against anyone else with the gravity with which I've been sinned against. And maybe it's been horrific. Yet I am a fallen creature. Yet I am a sinful creature. And I am a finite creature. 
So imagine, we're not talking about an offense against a human, another fallen person who's a peer. We're talking about an offense against Almighty God, who is entirely holy, who is entirely other. His magnitude is is beyond our comprehension. And our offense is not against a peer, because offense against a peer can be pretty bad. It's not offense against a peer. It's the creature offending against the Creator. And the guilt, the debt, is infinite. It's infinite. And so, Paul has been sinned against by the Jews. He's been beaten, thrown in jail. He's been whipped. He's been run out of town, threatened. All those things, he's been offended. And he's willing to forgive. He's he's willing to, to take their place. But it's a whole other level when we talk about offense against God. God who is holy and infinite and almighty. God who is holy and infinite and almighty would be just to punish every offense against him with infinite wrath. With infinite wrath. And so Paul is a small and fallen person. And so when he's thinking about his peers... He, he, he doesn't have the same perspective. You and I as, a, as people don't have that same perspective that God has on that topic. So what's the application? There's a point of application in these first couple of verses here. Like Paul, we need to feel our theology. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like Paul, we need to feel our theology. You see, some of us can kind of shut off the feeling, turn off the feels, as it were. And we think, and we think, and we reason, and we think, and we're over here in the cerebral place somewhere thinking, reasoning, without regard to how we're feeling. There are other people who do exactly the opposite. They, they are so invested in the feels that they turn off the thinking, and they emote, right? They feel, they they, they, they're over here in this realm over here, and they've, they've sort of shut off the reasoning, the rational part, right? So you see those two opposite. Now, most people are somewhere in between. Maybe they have moments of each. I don't know. But what we see here is that Paul is as emotionally invested in this question, in this topic, in his people, as could possibly be the case. And he lays that out. He doesn't hide it. He says, here's my broken heart. Here are my tears for my kinsmen. And then what does he do? Having done that, he doesn't emote his way to saying, and therefore God must save them all or something. No, he he acknowledges that feeling. He acknowledges that emotion. And then he reasons biblically. He reasons his way to an answer from Scripture. He's arguing from the history of Israel that they knew. He didn't pull out obscure passages from, you know, Proverbs 32 or something. He's he's quoting from their scriptures what they knew to be the case. And in light of that, he is reasoning his way. Not having denied what he feels, he led by saying, this is how I feel about it. Okay? And here's what's true. And so we need to feel our theology. That doesn't mean we feel our way to our theology. But that means that we need to develop our theology, what God says about himself and how we can know him and all of those things from scripture and they impact us down here. All the way. It's not a topic for discussion that, oh, that's going to be fun to discuss at Bible study and then I'll I'll, uh, drink my cup of coffee and go home. This is life. We're talking about what is real, true and ultimate reality. So we need to feel our theology, but at the same time being careful not to be blinded by emotion. Our theology will come to educate and inform our emotions so that we come to love and desire what God loves and desires, what he does. 
So we see, we see Paul's heart to begin with, his sincere compassion. Secondly, a shocking sentiment that we find in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul himself would be a willing substitute. He would offer himself as a willing substitute. He says he, he would be willing to be accursed. I've read this and, and, uh, and, and wondered about this and just... You know, wish, you, I wish I could quiz Paul on what exactly he's thinking or whatever. But as we look at this verse, you can see just how invested he is in his people. If he's willing to make himself a willing substitute. He himself was willing to be accursed from the Lord. Separated from God. He's saying, I would be willing to make that sacrifice. Now, you'll notice that it's, it's not a reality. He's not saying, look, I did the deal and this is what's going to happen. Because it's not a reality. It's not a real possibility. The argument that he just made at the end of Romans chapter 8 and everywhere else in Paul makes it clear that you can't go from being saved to being unsaved. So it's not a, it's not a real deal. It's not he's contemplating. He just hasn't signed the bottom line yet. No, it's He's saying, this is what I would do if it were even possible, if it were even permissible, if God would even allow, this is the the gift, this is the sacrifice, the substitute that I would be willing to make. But it's not a real possibility. He says, I I could wish, I could wish. And so here in 9.3, we have a very, very strong, a shocking statement of his love, of his commitment, of his investment over in 10, chapter 10 and verse 1. He makes a statement that's much less shocking but carries the same sentiment. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. And that's his heart's desire. And that's his prayer for them. He's even willing in 9.3 to be a substitute. And it's interesting when you think about the fact that Paul had this reputation of being hard on Israel or, or, or not loving Jews, not loving Israelites, or wanting to throw out the law. That was kind of the reputation that he had. And I said that's why he's, that's part of the reason he's laying out his heart the way he is. But it, what makes that so interesting is that he's actually like Moses. He's being like Moses. If you remember back in, in Exodus... We went through Exodus a couple of years ago in the golden calf incident. You've got Moses who was up on the mountain. He's receiving the law. And down below the mountain, what was going on? Well, they were already slipping into idolatry. At the very moment when Moses is up receiving the law from God, they're down here making the golden calf and worshiping it and doing everything else in rebellion already. And right after that golden calf incident, Moses speaking to the people says this in Exodus 32, verses 30 through 32. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. And then he stops. If you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses was willing to give himself. Blot me out, but forgive them. Accept me as a sacrifice, as a substitute, but let them go. Give them forgiveness. That was, that was Moses' heart. And here, Paul has this reputation of, of not liking Moses, of being against Moses, against the law, against Israel, against Judaism. And here he is exact, exactly like Moses and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm with Moses. I agree with Moses. I would be willing to do that. So he's like Moses, but of course, far more than that, in a sense, he is like Jesus. What, what substitute could be greater? What, what sacrifice, what offering could be greater? Well, of course, Jesus. The more important mediator is not Moses. Moses is important. 
And Jesus is so infinitely more important that Paul says of himself, he would be willing to be accursed for the sake of his brothers. And what does the Bible say of Jesus? Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul says, look, there's a, the way he words it makes it similar to Moses, but, but Moses, that being willing to sacrifice himself, that's just a type of Christ who would do that, who would be willing to go and would actually undergo himself being accursed for the sake of his brothers, to redeem sinners. That he not only made the statement, not only wrote about it in a book, But Jesus himself actually became one of his brothers, became human, entered into this world. The Son of God himself entered into this world for that purpose, to offer himself as that substitute. And so Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then he goes on to speak of their supreme advantages. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. He says, they are a blessed people. He refers to them as Israelites, not Jews. He could have said Jews, and and many times he does. But he calls them Israelites. That's because that's an insider term. That's, That's a term one Israelite would use to refer to another Israelite. He could correctly say Jews, but by saying Israelites, that would be like, like me talking to you about Fallon America. That, that's something that's an insider thing. And when someone from the military first moves into town or, or some poor kid from Arkansas moves into town in 1983, I had no idea what Fallon America was. But now it's, a, it's an identification. So if we want to refer to Fallonites... We want to refer to Fallon America. We get it. We're identifying with one another. We see that connection between you and me, and that's what Paul is doing. Remember, he has this reputation, but he says, they are Israelites. They're from Fallon America. He has a personal relationship, a personal relation, identification with them. And they are a blessed people. By saying they're Israelites, of course, that calls to mind Jacob and, and Israel and recalls to mind all of the history All of the blessing from the Old Testament, from Genesis on, they are a blessed people and they have blessed gifts. And he lists the gifts and we're not going to take the time to go through them in detail, but he says they are Israelites. That's the summary statement. To them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, etc. And he goes all the way through and lists all these blessings. And, And this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. But it's one that's very suggestive of what he's talking about here. He says, first of all, theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the adoption. Now, there's a powerful story that we looked at when we looked at Exodus chapter 4. When God had sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message, remember? Let my people go. That was the message. But he worded it a specific way when God sent Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 23. This was the message. This says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. So there's a very strong statement about who Israel is and God's relation that he he viewed Israel as his firstborn son. But then he gets stronger with Pharaoh and he says, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what was at stake You have two kings. You have two sovereigns. You've got Pharaoh who had a firstborn son whose life was in danger. You have God himself who has a firstborn son. That's the nation of Israel. 
the Hebrew children who were even then enslaved in Egypt. And so that's what's going on. There's adoption. They've been adopted. They've been made his own son. And what a special place to be. I mean, would you, would you like God to show up and make that kind of a declaration about you? Absolutely. It's adoption, being made God's own son. Theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the glory. Continuing on in the book of Exodus, when Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving the law, what was going on at the mountain? was glory was visible. The glory of God was visible. And it appeared like a devouring fire. And all the people could see it. God had visited them right there on that mountain. God had visited them. And then they were instructed and they built the tabernacle and they built the ark that went inside of it. And what happened when they built the tabernacle and what happened when they consecrated the tabernacle? The very last paragraph of Exodus is glorious because you see they've got it all built. They've got it consecrated. And what happens? The glory of the Lord filled it so much so that even Moses couldn't go in. The glory of the Lord was traveling around with them in a tent. God had visited them and God was going with them. The glory of the Lord was theirs. Theirs is the glory and theirs are the covenants. All the way back to the covenant made with Abraham and and following on, including Moses, those covenants that were made, the promises that were made by God to his people of how he was going to deal with them. And then, of course, the giving of the law. Right there at Sinai, again, God gives to Moses the law. God himself speaks, gives to Moses, gives to the nation of Israel his own character. This is what I'm like, and this is how I want you to behave. To whom else has he communicated that way? Egypt? The Assyrians? The Babylonians? Israel. Israel. The giving of the law. Theirs is the giving of the law. Theirs is the worship. God told the people of Israel in the law how they were to worship him, how they were going to, they as sinful people would be able to approach the holy God and worship him in truth. How could they do that? Because you don't just approach a holy God who is all powerful any old way you want. You don't just make something up and this day I think I'll do it this way. No, he's holy God who's, who's God of all things. You approach the way he says to approach. And he told that to the people of Israel. He gave them the sacrifices. He gave them the priesthood. He gave them the worship. And then the promises. Theirs are the promises. So many promises, probably too many to count, certainly too many to list together right here that God gave the nation of Israel. God gave to their people. But they can be summed up. The the most important aspect of the promise made to them, of all the promises made to them, had to do with the Messiah. Had to do with the coming deliverer. This Messiah had been promised to them would all the way back from the beginning, promised to them he would be a greater prophet than Moses. Moses was a great prophet. The Messiah will be a greater prophet, one greater than Moses. He would be a greater king than King David, the greatest of their kings. Their hero, the one who's like on their coins or whatever. Like he's that, he's David. And there will be a king come who is a greater than David. And he would be a priest who is greater than the entirety of the Levitical priesthood. And the sacrifice that he would offer as that great priest would be infinitely greater than any sacrifice, any other means of worship that could ever be worshipped or offered to God. That is the Messiah. That is the promise that had been given to them. He is finally the blessed seed, which is the conclusion he comes to in verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, which I didn't talk about. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. He's that Messiah. He's that one promise, the greater than Moses, the greater than David, the greater than the priesthood, the better sacrifice, the the Messiah. That's who he is. But this is the this is the most tragic part of the paragraph. 
Because that Messiah comes on the scene. The, the one who embodies the promises comes on the scene. And they didn't want him. They didn't receive him. They'd been told for thousands of years to expect this Messiah. And he finally comes on the scene. And they reject him. They reject him. And so Paul, even in wrapping up this initial paragraph, he, he's summing up all the, all the blessings that belong to this people. But look how it's worded in verse 5. He doesn't say they're Messiah. You can say they're Messiah, but he makes a point of wording it differently because he wants to make it clear. This was the Messiah that came from their lineage, came from their race. This is the Messiah that came from them. But he doesn't say it's theirs. He doesn't say this Messiah is theirs. Not that he's not theirs, but his point is they've rejected him. He came from them. And they've rejected him because he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. You see, they had wanted a Messiah who would give political deliverance military might to overcome their enemy. He would take care of them economically. They loved it when Jesus fed them with bread, when he, when he worked miracles like that and took care of them. They, they, they were looking for someone to take care of them physically, both in their political world and their economic situation and, and militarily, someone who would protect them physically, bodily, in their, in their land. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and here he is, the Son of God, divine being himself, the second person of the Trinity who has taken on flesh, taken on the form of a bondservant. He's human. And what does he do? Well, he obeys God perfectly. Well, that's great, because the Messiah should be a great example for us. But he obeys God perfectly, he obeys the law. He keeps and fulfills the law. But he's not doing these other things. Yeah, he'll feed us sometimes, but then he says, he says, no, you shouldn't seek for signs and wonders. You shouldn't seek for the bread that perishes. That's not what you should seek for. You should seek for something eternal. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and his, what he's offering is not military victory. He's not offering protection for them as a nation. He's offering something different. He's offering... Redemption. Because the problem that they had is the same problem that you and I have. And that is our own sinfulness before God. It's that from the time our first parents were created and went immediately into rebellion, from that time on, every human, except in Christ Himself, every human is born a sinner born at enmity with God, born like our first parents turned into, we're turning our back on God. And so every person is born with that. And that's a problem, and that's a deep-down problem, and no, no outward conformity of my life is going to make that change. No provision, political provision made for me, or economic provision, not even a reformation of my life will result in that inward change that I have to have. Because I need redemption here. I need salvation here. I need the work of the Messiah here in my heart. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he's obedient to God and keeps his law where you and I have disobeyed. And yet at the end, when he didn't have to die because he had no sin that would cause him to have to die. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin. He didn't need to die. Yet at that point, he goes to the cross. He who's holy and righteous, perfect, undeserving of death, honoring to God, goes to the cross to pay the penalty that you and I have earned by our behavior, by our heart, by our inheritance from our first father. He pays that penalty. 
And he dies. And he rises from the dead on the third day because God raised him from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead and receives him back to be with him in heaven. And now what does Jesus say will happen? He says he will send his Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will cause us to be born again from within where we will be made new, where there will be redemption that happens deep down in here where he converts us. He redeems us in our inner man because that's where we need salvation. I can learn some disciplines and I can stop doing some bad things and I can, I can arrange some political things and change my life and Those things are not the issue. What I cannot change is my sinful heart. And so Jesus comes and he does that work. And that gospel being proclaimed to us, the gospel that I proclaim to you today, that is the saving gospel. That is the salvation, the deliverance, that the Christ, the Messiah, came to bring to cause us to be converted within, to cause us to be born again within, to cause us to be redeemed right down here in our heart. And so Paul, when he was thinking about his, his fellow Israelites, it caused him deep agony that they would reject their Messiah, that they would reject the Savior sent Because he knew that the redemption that is actually needed is not the redemption they were seeking for. And so my my prayer this morning is that the, the redemption we are seeking for would be the redemption we actually need. The deliverance from our sins. To be saved from our sins and the penalty thereof. And so if you don't know Christ, maybe someone's listening or watching on the internet or maybe someone here, if you don't know Christ, and you're, you're seeking, you're at church or listening to church because you're seeking for some kind of salvation out there physically, a change of something out there. The salvation that you need and that Jesus comes to give is interior. And so the call for you this morning is to put your faith in Christ, to look to Him, acknowledge your own need, acknowledge that that's a reformation you cannot make. That's a change you cannot fix. It requires Jesus himself to do that. And look to him and trust in him. And you will find, when you put your faith in him, you will find he makes you alive and you will have peace with God. And you will experience what Paul was talking about at the end of Romans chapter 8. That joy of being in Christ and having peace with God, secure and eternal and perfect because it's accomplished by God in Christ Jesus. And so that's my prayer for us this morning is that we would look to Jesus in that way that we would that we would trust in Him, that we would realize our own need and look to Him instead. And secondly, that having looked to Him and having seen ourselves here in Romans chapter 8 and rejoicing in that peace that we would then, like Paul, go to 9-1. And we would think, but there are others. There are people around me, maybe even my own family, my own kinsmen, who don't know Christ, who don't have this peace. And that we would seek to take that gospel to them. That we would seek their salvation, that we would pray for that salvation, that we would give ourselves, pour out our lives to bring the gospel to those people that they would come to know Christ and they could have that same joy that we have. And so Paul isn't shifting gears here. This is an outworking of the same joy that he's talking about in Romans chapter 8. And my prayer is that it will be that outworking for us as well, that we would so rejoice in this gospel that we have and this salvation that we have that we would take it to the lost around us. Let's pray. Father, this passage uh, begins a heavy section and Paul's heart is certainly heavy in uh, in this paragraph Father I think about the blessings that the Israelites had and I think about the blessings that we in America have they are very different of course they are on a different plane 
But we have such blessings from you, and they should cause us to look to you and rejoice and give you thanks that we have been born in this place, we get to live in this place, we have such blessings and such freedoms. It should cause us to look to you and give thanks, and yet all too often in our nation, that is not the result. If they look to you at all, if they look to the church at all, if they look to Jesus at all, it's for some kind of deliverance from some external thing, whether it's illness or financial situation or uh, political struggle or uh, broken lives. Legitimate pains. But if that's all they're looking to you for, they're missing the point. So, Father, I pray that you would use us, the church, first of all, to rejoice in this gospel, to rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ, to give you thanks and praise that we would indeed be able to uh, rejoice with Paul like he does at the end of Romans 8. And that we would also be those, like in Romans 9, who would take that gospel message to the lost, pleading with them to trust in Christ, to turn to you, exhorting them to do so, calling them to faith, calling them to repentance. Father, I pray that you would use us to that end. And I pray that not just here at Parkside and Fallon, but I pray that for your church in this entire state and nation and even around this world, that you would motivate us, that you would mobilize us to take the gospel to the lost. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity and for this passage of Scripture. May we, may we go away with it in our minds and still working in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all and you are dismissed.